This is Entheogen. We talk about tools for generating the divine within. It's August 21st, 2015. We're talking about a new understanding, the science of psilocybin with Robert J. Barnhart. Robert, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here this afternoon, Joe. So uh, many people may not uh, know that uh, you're a film producer. This is a, a film that's, I guess, getting ready to come out in a few weeks, and we'll, we'll dig into uh, more about a new understanding. Um, but you're also on the board of MAPS. I guess you've been on the board of MAPS since about 2009 or so, and you're involved with the Hefter Research Institute. That's correct. I'm on the board of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, as well as the Hefter Research Institute. And how far back uh, does your experience with Hefter go? I know they've been around for uh, quite a while, right? Since the, well, maybe as long as MAPS, since the 80s? Uh, you know, I, th- that's a good question, and I don't know exactly my, when, wh- what the exact date that we started at Hefter, but I've been involved with them since the mid-90s. But, but then I, I was uh, not on the board until um, both, uh, actually on the board of MAPS and Hefter, it was at about the same time I joined the board about uh, both boards about six years ago. Excellent. Um, and so you've been working on producing this movie, I guess, over the last few years as well. So it seems like your interest in this uh, area, um, you know, sort of uh, started to, uh, you know, increase around that time. Um, but what about your background in this area? I know you had some personal experience from from seeing the movie, um, you know, with with the experience of uh, entheogens in the context of healing. But what was your experience prior to that, just in general? Yeah, my uh, my. Uh background that brought me to the film. Um, I have a, a, a bachelor's degree in comparative religion from Emory University in, um, in Atlanta, Georgia. And what brought me to that degree was, um, as a teenager, I had some uh, interesting uh, unitive mystical experiences with um, entheogens that uh, I, I was trying to understand. So I went to university and uh, uh, studied philosophy and found that quite dry and boring. And then in the Christian mystics, uh, found people who um, who understood these experiences very well and ended up getting a degree in uh, in comparative religion. Then what specifically brought me into this field um, back in 1983, I was. Uh, in my first marriage, uh, I uh, was seeing a family therapist with some issues from my stepfather. And at one point, I opened up to the therapist and told him about my uh, interest in, um, in theogenic experiences. And he said, well, why don't you... His name was Don Williamson. He was an old Irishman and a licensed uh, psychologist. And he said... Why don't you see what's happening in the field? And I said to him, I said, field? What do you mean? And he said, yeah, the field. See what professional people are, are doing. So I thought, well, how am I going to do that? So I wrote Andy Weil a letter and Timothy Leary. And um, Andy and Tim wrote me back. And um, I can't remember who else I wrote, but people wrote me back. And I ended up... Uh, getting in touch with Rick Doblin, and um, 
and had joined Rick early on around 1984 when he had an early organization called Earth Metabolic Design before even before MAPS. And um, then that summer, a little bit more about my background, that summer of 1985, I went up to Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, to take a course from Dr. Thomas Roberts um, called uh, Psychedelic Research 101, hmm. which to my knowledge um, was and, and since has been the only uh, real course on that um, in the country, although the California Institute of Integral Studies is getting ready to open up a whole psychedelic therapist training program, I believe. Um, so that's a bit about my uh, background, um, about how I got into this field. It was a little, a little bit here and there over the years. Initially, I uh, was involved in uh, some philanthropy and helping get Rick started at MAPS, which uh, didn't require a whole lot. One of the first things we did was um, Rick needed to do rat toxicity studies with MDMA to prove that it was safe for humans to take MDMA. Um, so I have some Tibetan Buddhist leanings and I do some practice and the idea of buying rats and dosing them on high dosing them on MDMA and then sacrificing them was a difficult decision, but we decided to do that, and uh, th that's that initial start has brought brought Rick to where he um, is today. Following that, we had to do toxicity studies with four monkeys, which I am very much against doing that, and uh, wish that there had been another pathway to do it. Um, well, wow. I'm always so impressed to hear and, and read about, um, you know, what, what sort of I would consider uh, the, the deep history of uh, psychedelic research, uh, you know, only a few decades ago, but where, um, you know, where, where basically all the groundwork was being laid for some of these first, you know, few uh, human trials that we're seeing in the last, uh, you know, few years, really. Yeah, that, that's true. The groundwork was laid way back in the mid 80s. And, um, I don't know the exact math on it, but it's taken Rick 25 to 30 years to get to the point where MAPS is just getting ready to go into phase three studies, which are, are multiple site studies with many, many people. And uh, when those show that, for example, with MDMA, that it, that it doesn't, does not have a high addictive potential and a bona fide medical use, then the Federal Drug Administration can make a decision to move it from Schedule 1 into Schedule 2, where the, the uh, medicine plus the therapy uh, will be available by prescription. Yeah, that's uh, that's we seem to be on the cusp of of that happening, and I have a lot of hope uh, that we'll see it, you know, soon. It almost in the same way that the uh, you know the sort of cannabis revolution uh, had sort of snuck up on a lot of people. I think that you know I I remember just five years ago, ten years ago, uh, people proclaiming like we would just never see that happen. It just won't happen in our lifetime. And uh, you know, here we are with. Uh, you know, medical use being being respected uh, and accepted, and and outright you know recreational legalization happening, beginning to happen around the country. So I have a lot of hope that uh, something, uh, you know, as effective um, as these entheogens uh, will will follow a similar path, hopefully very soon. Right, and the the studies with um, 
MDMA that MAPS is conducting and the studies that the Hefter Research Institute has been conducting with psilocybin, um, these, um, these studies show that along with the therapy, both medicines are effective in the range of about 80% of the time, which statistically is extremely high. You have to show that they're more effective than a um, placebo, which is effective about 30% of the time. So there's nothing on the market that, that shows the effectiveness that these phase two trial studies have shown with MDMA and psilocybin. And another thing that I'd like to point out is the Federal Drug Administration has supervised the protocol in these studies from the beginning. It's had to, we've had to meet exacting specifications in the way that the studies are conducted with IRBs looking at them at the various universities. And so the, the FDA, Federal Drug Administration, has supervised these studies from the word go so that when the results do come out, the FDA is going to respect those results because they're the ones that have been involved with designing the studies in a very uh, in intimate manner. So the studies are, are hold hold serious water. They're they're very it's wow. very rigorous science, and um, so we just have to we have we're right on the edge of these phase three studies, and it looks like that will take three to four years to conduct those. So. Well, it, I'm, it, it, I'm not a psychologist, and I'm not a researcher, but it, from what I hear, we're looking at the possibility of about five years from now, around 2020, 2021, where both these medicines would be available by, uh, by a prescription. And I should add, when I say the word medicine, on a personal note, and this is a personal comment, um, I don't feel like you need to be sick to get better. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really interesting uh, angle too, which well I remember said. reading in in some of these articles we've talked about. Where uh, it, who who said it was it was it Dave Nichols talking about the the betterment of well people? Oh, uh, Bob Jesse. Bob Jesse, right? Yeah, yeah, the betterment of well people. I very much support that. Um, the betterment of well people. That that's a great phrase. So it, in all this, uh, you know, all these studies and all this prog progress we've made, it's really all um, thanks to uh, mostly private funding, right? That's correct. All of these studies have been um, privately funded. Um, there's some, uh, um, some hope that it, at some point NIDA may... Um, may fund some of these, but they've been all privately funded. As I understand it, um, both MDMA and psilocybin are, are in the public domain. You, you cannot patent them, so therefore the pharmaceutical companies are not interested in them because they can't get a patent on them, and uh, so it's, it's left it up to private money, um, and it, it, it looks like the... Uh, the finances will be there to take it through uh, phase three. And I will uh, put in a shameless plug at this time that both MAPS and Hefter very much appreci appreciate every penny and dollar that, um, that people donate. And the money's very much needed to um, get us through phase three. Those phase three studies, um, to bring a drug through a, a phase three study, um, and uh, I, I'm not one of the researchers, but what I understand, it's generally in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 million dollars. Wow. 
Uh, would have to be orders of magnitude more expensive than than some of these earlier studies, just with the scale of uh, participants and and things like that. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So some of the money's been raised, but there's more to go, and um, help is certainly appreciated. That's something we can um, we can drop in our show notes. Uh, you know about possibly uh, donating to to such studies in the future. And actually, one one of the questions I had in watching uh, the documentary, uh, which I which I really liked, I thought it was fantastic, but was uh, about the pharmaceutical companies. That's a really kind of interesting point because I, I guess one of my questions was wh- why aren't they trying to, I guess, use a, a substance like LSD or, or psilocybin and slightly modify it or slightly add to it uh, in order to, you know, without doing much uh, background, you know, background legwork, uh, make, make profit off of, uh, off of these substances? Yeah, that's a question that I often hear asked, and it's, it's a good one that I don't have a, as a, someone who's not a, uh, a, uh, a, uh, a neuroscientist or a researcher myself, I don't have a ready answer to. Um, I can um, make uh, so, some general comments, but that my answer is probably similar to what the, uh, what the rest of us think about that. Um, w- one thought is I've heard David Nutt at the University of London, who's done conducted some very interesting uh, research using MRIs and psychedelics. And right now he's involved with the uh, Beckley Foundation doing a a study um, with how LSD interacts with the brain um, when somebody, and then looking at it on, at an MRI. But um, Dr. Nutt has pointed out that these entheogens can oftentimes do in one session what it takes six weeks for Prozac or Zoloft to even begin to do. So if you extrapolate from that, um, if these medicines show promise with one session and, um, and Zoloft or Prozac is costing, or Paxil or whatever it is, is costing you know, roughly $10 a pill or something, you wonder, uh, is it financially, um, is there incentive there for the, these companies to do it? From a purely capitalistic perspective, it kind of makes sense that, you know, effective one-time use treatments, you know, don't fit into that model of generating the, the most profits. And I think it's it's not difficult to, to feel a little skeptical when you think about what what have been the barriers to entry for certain entheogens? You know, when there's a very powerful corporate, um, you know, entity that the the pharmaceutical companies are currently very profitable doing what they're doing, and and it, you know, even talking about this, like you were mentioning the phase three and in, in the film, it goes into a great explanation of of just how much effort goes into allowing these to be legally studied and to collect information on them. And it's exciting that, uh, you know, it's exciting that we're happening. And it's also frustrating to think that we've lost, you know, half a century of the ability because these things are scheduled so harshly at, at a time. And so it's, I thought the, the film did a really good job of kind of breaking that down, like what those phases are of being able to research it for it to be under consideration of no longer being scheduled one. Um, the question of whether or not the pharmaceutical companies or will be able to dis- distribute it, uh, I think that's totally separate and going to be a, a, an additional challenge. 
Sure, and it, it leads you to the to the question why. With, with, I imagine the lobby that they have, why are they not doing more? Maybe we just don't know about it, but why are they not doing more to further block entry? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm right there with you guys. Um, as far as I know, there's been little contact, if any, between Hefter and MAPS and the pharmaceutical companies. I haven't heard of any contact or knowledge um, either way. Anything we've been talking about just now is, you know, my personal opinion and our speculation about about how it might go on that question of why don't they why don't they take the LSD molecule sure, sure. slightly modify it and come up with a patentable drug that um, that might work that is a good uh, a good question that we at this point I believe we can only speculate on well, although I think that would be a great question for somebody like Dave Nichols yeah that's a, that is a very interesting uh, question. It just occurred to me that uh, you know one one area of research potential is to uh, potentially research uh, use of something like LSD in very small doses over uh, the periods of time. You know, regularly spaced dosages, the microdose that we've talked about on the show. Um, yeah. That you know that might be something that the pharmaceutical industry is would be interested in because it could be something that uh, you know they could stand to profit on indefinitely. Oh, that that's true. Yeah, something that you might take on a uh, on a fairly regular basis at um at at low dose. That's an an interesting um uh, mm. uh, uh idea, and you seem to hear more about that about th- these days. Um, you know that that could be that could be something uh that 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 might uh. They might be interested in, but then one wonders too about the political um, ramifications of this. Like you said, um, back in the in the forties through the fifties, up through the sixties, and even into the early seventies, there was significant research being done on all of these um, entheogenic medicines, and um, and uh, during the fifties and up into the early sixties, LSD therapy was legal in the United States. Of course, you know, Cary Grant is one of the more famous people. And then because of, as we know, because of the hysteria in the 60s, um, Richard Nixon shut the whole thing down as kind of a knee-jerk reaction. And then it was um, um, 20, 20 plus years before the research was started up. Um, and uh, it's it, it is it's exciting now that it has been started up, but it's I think important for people to realize that there was significant scientific research being done um, uh, prior to when all this was scheduled. Although that the rigor that the studies were done, uh, they didn't have the uh, have the scientific rigor that we do today. Well, sure. also the technology, uh, you know, wasn't there, and a lot of technology, uh, has, you know, a lot of innovation has happened in in, in medicine and in, in research and in science. And uh, you mentioned, you know, Doctor Nutt and the sort of correlation between, you know, brain function, uh, you know, air, areas of the brain that light up, you know, based on the subjective experience that the person's having, and, and things like that. And and those are things we can now study with, um, you know, with tools that just weren't there back at the beginning. Sure, and and I think there was one other interesting point uh, that you brought up in the documentary that was fantastic was, um, 
you know, I think trying, maybe trying to uh, get get people to see these things in a new light is is easier for some people, more difficult for others. But when it comes to the scientific realm and using these substances to not o- not only in the subjective experience of the person and whether or not it makes them better, but whether uh, using them as tools to better understand the brain itself. And I thought that was a fantastic uh, part of, part of the documentary and something that. Perhaps even the most uh, conservative person who doesn't believe or doesn't want to believe in the, uh, in the subjective experience of the person could be behind the scientific discovery aspect. And it's, it's really all of these things that we're talking about now that I personally feel is, is potentially the greatest value of the film. Uh, and, I, and I know we have some questions about the film itself and our, and our listeners. I want you know, people to be excited when this becomes available to be seen. Um, but the, just the idea that there is sort of a social coming around to these and the scientific coming around and, and really what I, and I, I kind of took from the film is that it's, we've done a lot of research for the show over the past year and I enjoyed seeing kind of some of the faces that we've been reading in these articles like Bossis and Professor Nutt and Richards and it was cool for me personally to see these people and see these things talked about that we've been researching, um, but I had a question for you. Um, is there a target audience for the film? Is is there? Do you want to kind of convey this message to a, a subset of people? The uh, yeah, the target audience. Um, th- that's the general general public um, wor- worldwide, if you will. Um, and I, um, I, I've, I I believe as a producer of the film that these medicines and substances are not just for a particular subculture or a, a particular group of people, regardless of, um, of uh, religious affiliation, political affiliation, um, economic standing, or what have you, that they may be useful for a wide variety of people across various interests and um, cultures and and um, standing in life, they certainly may not be for everybody, but the um, the studies are showing that they can be help, helpful to uh, a wide, po- possibly a wide range of people. So the audience, I uh, was, I'm hoping to reach a uh, perhaps a naive audience that doesn't know a lot about these medicines, hasn't heard a lot about them, or perhaps has been misinformed about them and sure. um, because they're an illegal drug is, has, has grouped them into the category of something like crack cocaine. Um, right. <laughs> which, which, you know, so there's a, a difference? An erroneous <laughs> nice comparison. Guy. So I'm going for a wide audience. So in, in making a new understanding, the science of psilocybin, um, my goal was to just simply document the research that was going that is going on is currently going on at UCLA, New York University and Johns Hopkins University and show a little bit um I, I will say that so that uh we we have patients from the Hefter patients isn't quite the right word but subjects that were involved in the research studies that, at the that the Hefter Research Institute is doing with Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Um, and uh, so uh, initially I needed subjects, and the Hefter Research Institute opened those psilocybin subject, uh, subjects up to me 
So that focused the film on the medicine psilocybin as opposed to some other um, one of the one of the entheogens. Um, right, that so makes sense. The, the uh, um, so the goal of the film here was to show a little bit about where psilocybin came from, just a little bit of the history that it didn't just appear in a lab sometime in the '60s. That this has a very ancient use, going back to indigenous cultures around the world. The mushroom grows in many places around the world, and it's particularly been used by the Mazatec Indians for healing and um, spiritual enlightenment down in Mexico. So we show a little bit about the history, then a bit about how it works in the brain and how it works with the neurotransmitters in the brain. And not too much science to overwhelm people, but just a little bit so you understand that it's not damaging the brain or causing any brain damage and uh, that it, it's uh, one, of the, one of the safer medicines that one could take. Um, then we have the researchers talking about how the medicine should work, why they're working with it, what it should do, and what, if, it, what, if any, um, drawbacks might be. And then we have three of the patients themselves um, uh, um, talking about the effect on them. Yeah, those were very compelling, the live testimonials. Um, that uh, was very personalizing and humanizing. And you, you mentioned before like the setting a wide target audience, and you mentioned a few within that. And I feel like the people who will really benefit from this film are people who are generally misinformed. I think that represents a huge part of the general population who have an understanding of what these things are through a lot of misinformation and ignorance and that this film will give people the opportunity to see human beings um, express this in a very sincere, um, in a sincere way. Um, so I got a lot of that for myself. When did you start... Uh, the filming, like when did you begin these interviews? Like when did you start taking footage? Because it seems like it's it's a several year project. Is that right? Yeah, it was. It was about a five year project. We started. Um, I don't recall the exact date, but sometime in two thousand nine, early two thousand ten, wow. and um, I, I'm almost sixty. So um, my I've had some learning experiences in life. Um, and uh, my 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 second wife said to me, um, Robert, your daughter, um, who's ten years old now, she was born when I was fifty. And Melissa said to me, um, Why don't you make a little home movie for your daughter about your own life? Um, just a very small, really home movie. And uh, and I know a filmmaker that could help you put something nicely together for your daughter where you could talk about what's important to you and maybe have your father interviewed and a couple of other prominent people in your life and just put something together for her so she can see that daddy didn't just appear out of anywhere and, and has lived half a century and had a very full life. So I said, okay, let's do that. So I met with the filmmaker and then in the course of those early months of of making a film, um, and this was to be a private film just for my family and my daughter, and mm -hmm. um, but she went out to interview Charlie Grobe at UCLA, who's also a friend of mine, and uh, 
Joe Subinando, the president of the California Institute of Integral Studies, and Roz Dauber came back to me um, and said, I think there's material here for a documentary film. So I want to really thank um, Rosalind Dauber because without her and without Melissa Richardson, my second wife, there'd be no film without them having that idea. So Roz did all of those initial field interviews. Um, in fact, she did all the field interviews and the directing of them in the film, um, which took um, a, a, a couple of years to do, I believe. And then um, we narrowed it down because Roz said, hey, we need some patients, some people who've been in the studies. And Hefter said, okay, you can use our um, our people. Um, and then and then Roz very wonderfully brought me up to a certain point and then uh, to finish the film, um, uh, Brady Dial helped finish producing it, and Jason Eusen was the uh, finishing editor. And um, we're we're very pleased with the way it took out turned out. But it, it was the film's very much a labor of love. Um, as noted in the film, I had cancer myself about 20 years ago. It was life threatening. I went through chemotherapy. So I understand uh, personally about human mortality and actually whether you're sick with cancer or you're just living, um, none of us get out of this alive. So our human mortality is something we need. Without being, being morbid, we need to deal with it because if we can handle our fear of death, then we can live more fully. And until we really take a good look at the fact we're not going to be here forever and come to terms with that, we may not be living our lives fully. So it's out of these kinds of feelings that I was, when Roz said, I think you've got material for a documentary film, um, I said, okay, let's do it. And I turned her loose with the camera and had her interview Ralph Metzner, Stan Groff, Jeremy Narby, um, George Greer, on and on, um, Roland Griffiths, um, Dave Nichols, Rick Doblin, and um, as we, we amassed about 200 hours of footage, which we've, uh, we've edited. In addition to the film, we've edited that footage down to approximately 65 hours. And um, wow. at some point, we're going to release a package on the Internet where the film itself will be available, a, a new understanding, the science of psilocybin, along with all that all that footage. So we're hoping to release it in such a way that for somebody who just has a has a an initial interest, they can watch the film and enjoy the film and learn from it. And then if they have a deeper interest or want to see particular footage from a, a particular individual that we interviewed, they can see that footage as well. So that's that's really exciting for us that the technology is there now to do that kind of thing. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. That's that, really exciting. Uh, that's one of the, uh, the the things that uh, I kept I kept thinking of over and over while watching the film is when you take on a project like this, how uh, how do, you know how do you, how did you decide which substance and and then how? And I think it's brilliant uh, using psilocybin because I feel like even in the uh, mind of the most conservative person about this, there is a distinction between something natural and something synthetic, and and that's something that I've I've heard my entire life, even from people who've had no experience. It's it's a distinction they make. 
So I think something like psilocybin is um, potentially more accessible to to a wider audience. And then I think also uh, in, in focusing on uh, the the I guess the experiments and the effects on people who are dealing with uh, terminal illness is also another uh, another way to get to a, a larger public. It's something that everybody will will deal with personally or in their family. And I think uh, kind of it's a, t- a two-pronged approach to gaining the widest audience possible for something like this. Y- yes, yes. And, y- you know, it, um, you'd think that we thought that through in the beginning, and <laughs> that subject, but it, it's just serendipity or the, if I talked more at length about this, the, it's like I did not wake up one morning and decide, oh, I'm going to make a documentary film about the, psilocybin research that the Hefter Research Institute is doing. It, um, it wasn't a homework assignment in your uh, Psychedelics 101 course in college? <laughs> it, one step led to another. Although, when I was in high school, and I'd forgotten this until I, until I got well into this film, when I was in high school, we were taking a filmmaking class, and uh, I had the thought, it would be wonderful to make a film to be able to illuminate people as to what a entheogenic um, experience is. What is that? How does it look? How does it feel? And then um, being just uh, high school students, we realized that was way beyond our means and understanding, so we dropped dropped the idea, and I didn't think about it. It didn't cross my mind until I got well into this film project. And then I remembered having that thought back when I was in high school. So somehow it ended up coming full circle. But there was so much magic in this, like meeting uh, uh, Roz Dauber and Brady Dial and Jason Eusen and uh, Mark Hall, who uh, produced a film called Sushi the Global Catch about overfishing bluefin tuna. He was so helpful about... uh, getting me in touch with Brady Dial and offering pointers along the way. And um, it's not something I could have found in the yellow pages. It was a lot of serendipity and word of mouth and people, uh, people helping me along the way, um, including now um, we're working with Mitch Schultz, who uh, produced the film DMT, The Spirit Molecule. And uh, Mitch is a godsend with uh, helping get things set up to get the film out there to as many people as possible in the, uh, in the next coming months. Well, I definitely think it's uh, poised to fulfill that, that role of appealing to a, a broad audience uh, for, for the reasons uh, Kevin mentioned. And uh, it is a very personal, um, you know, personal film. I mean, it's, it, it brings you into the room, uh, you know, of, of a patient who is going through this experience. Um, I thought that was really interesting to, just sort of document how that uh, how that works, so people can understand the the seriousness with which this subject can be dealt. Um, you know, as opposed to the more freewheeling sort of fun. Uh, experience that a lot of people would associate, you know, uh, psychedelics with, you know, thinking of the 60s and, and all these colors and, you know, and, and just chaos. And, uh, you know, but to, to bring somebody into the room where someone is going to, you know, lay down on the couch uh, with, uh, you know, headphones on, with a blindfold on, um, with, you know, with a guide there at the ready, um, it, it really gave insight into how these studies work. Um, 
And uh, so I think it's it really does help just to show people, um, you know, what's happening with the science, what's happening with these studies, um, and that there is this alternative um, real uh, sort of benefit to these substances that a lot of people really have never considered. Yeah, th- thank you. That was that was very well very well said, and that was our intention is to walk people through this step by step in a very clear manner so they can understand what these studies involve and how rigorous and scientific they are. And then um, at the same time, there are two trained um, licensed therapists there with the patient, but these um, doctors are finding that the healing really comes out of the individual, that it's an internal um, internal healing process. And while all the parameters are rigorously controlled, the healing itself coming out of this internal experience is not, this is more research needs to be done, but it's not necessarily in the drug. It's um, the drug is a key that opens some sort of healing process within the individual themselves. So Mm -hmm. from that point of view, it, it gets and I'm not a doctor, but it gets fascinating about questions about what what is human health, what is mental health, what does it mean to be fully human, and how do we access those parts of ourselves that are already in us that may be clouded over or blocked or we may be un, unaware of. Yeah, it, it sort of just illustrates the point that uh, really the, the therapist and, and even the, the, the person's own mind just sort of need to get out of the way and, and allow the experience to, uh, you know, to lead, to lead them on the path of healing. Um, and I would love to see more about that. I mean, so, you know, it, it does, it does say right in the name, you know, that it's about the science of psilocybin and it delves a little bit into, you know, the serotonin 2A receptors and how serotonin is the oldest neurotransmitter and, and how these, you know, various enthe- entheogens seem to operate on, on that neurotransmitter. But I'd love to see even a part two with, with even more science, just sort of investigating, you know, how exactly, uh, these things, you know, what, what is the mode of operation of these, uh, of these substances and, and in what is the best context in which to, to experience them, you know, to facilitate this healing. That, that's, uh, exciting for me to hear. Um, we'll take a look at the, um, success of this film and how many people want to see it and how many people watch it and if possible i'd be excited to make a um a new understanding too and a sequel with um um starting to look more deeply into uh, some of those questions that you raised it, it uh, another point with the subjects i should mention to our audience that one of our subjects is from a study at Johns Hopkins entitled um, something to the effect of uh, it's a study to see if psilocybin can occasion a mystical experience in an individual that has lasting meaning over time. And they, indeed they did run this study and it showed that a, a st- statistically extremely high percentage of people when followed up later on the study that they had such a deeply meaningful experience that it was right up there with the sort of thing like a a woman giving birth to her child. People listed it in the top one, two, three, four experiences of their lives. And then what that, there's part of that experience where that 
it, it seems from what I hear from talking to the psychologists and researchers that having a deep, unitive, mystical experience where one feels connected to their world and not separate, that has a deep uh, healing quality to it. So one of our subjects did not have cancer. Nancy Lundahl was perfectly healthy, had never used any entheogens before, and had a very deeply healing uh, experience that that uh, was so positive for her, she has gone on to um, write a book about about the subject. And and what when you hear uh, Sandy Lundahl talk, what it brings up again, and I mentioned this earlier, whether we have terminal cancer or not, to some extent we're all terminal. Of course, not to be morbid, but we all, all are mortal, and. Uh, the ways that we can deal with that, our mortality, and uh, come to terms with it, will help us live more fully. So that's a people find this very compelling um, to see Sandy in the film with her uh, background is, if I might use this, just say an, an ordinary uh, an ordinary American woman. Sure, and it lays, uh, you know, lays the groundwork for so many other types of studies. I mean, in the uh, in the trip, the famous trip treatment uh, piece in the New Yorker, as well as uh, when you were mentioning um, that that uh, mystical experience, it reminded me of the uh, the famous Marsh Chapel uh, experiment. Good yeah, good, the Good Friday experiment, exactly in Boston, and and just some of the um, just some of the stories I've read about that, and it just uh, yeah, it just seems there are, there are so many areas of study. Uh, in, in terms of possibly producing remedies, uh, but it just we just need that that the background the to be to be done well. I, I, it seems to me that there are so many studies that could be done, and this field is so rich. Um, I, I think the studies that have been done to date, from back from the fifties and sixties, is up in the thousands. There have been hundreds of books written on this subject. It's so compelling, and it it uh. And the FDA seems to be approving these studies quicker. What used to take years, in some cases, they're approving them in in uh, months. Now, if I had a, if I had, uh, Dave Nichols here, he might correct me on my enthusiasm. But I, the studies are being approved much faster. Um, so what? But they're very expensive to run. One of these studies can come up close to about uh, one million dollars to run a study eight 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 nine hundred thousand a million dollars and then you need a qualified researcher who knows how to work with the FDA to go through all the paperwork to do it so as a layperson here who's a filmmaker um, I it appears to me that there's a backlog of work that could be done and this field's really just in its infancy Absolutely. And it is a very exciting time for that reason, just because of how many different areas of research, you know, would, uh, would stand to benefit from, you know, from the use of uh, entheogens, um, and, uh, and how untapped that sort of market has been. So certainly, I'd encourage all listeners um, to, I guess, donate to Hefter, uh, the Hefter Research Institute, uh, and the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, um, to who are, seem to be two of the the primary, uh, you know, funders of, of these really um, really uh, worthwhile uh, areas of research. Um, are there any others? Any other ways you can recommend, uh, you know, uh, lay people to uh, to get involved and 
and uh, help ensure that these things, these studies get done? Yes, well, there's the uh, the Beckley Foundation in England for any people listening who might be in uh, in Europe, which is a wonderful organization. Um, I personally think it's useful um, to the extent you can to start start to talk to people about this and come out of the closet to the extent that one feels comfortable and um, share your knowledge with people, share your experiences, and um, and then uh, talk about it. Um, if you have a congressperson that you feel may be sympathetic and understand the need for this medical research to uh, write a, an intelligent um, diplomatic letter to your uh, congressperson may be, may be helpful. Um, but I think pr- primarily what seems to come across is the need for funding at this point um, to uh, um, at maps.org and uh, Hefter. Org. Um, uh, as we're kind of closing up here, I wanted to, I just picked up Sandy Lundahl's book. I'd like to give a little plug for it. It's called uh, Anthroposophia, Anthroposophia, A Different Kind of Love Story, One Woman's Psilocybin Experience by Sandy Lundahl. So um, you can find her book, um, I, we may have information on Hefter about her book, but you could read this and get a direct report from what it's like for someone to to run through one of these studies. And uh, it's been a real uh, pleasure for me to be on the show and be able to talk about the film A New Understanding, The Science of Psilocybin. We're very pleased with the film and we're so excited that it's going to be coming out soon. Definitely, and and that's one last thing that listeners can do um, to you know to support th- this cause is is uh, watch the watch the film um, you know and and not only that but but show your friends and show your family and you know help them gain that perspective uh, that these that these things really do hold a lot of promise and this is a really valid uh, area of study and uh, interest so definitely check out the film a new understanding the science of psilocybin uh, I believe that's at a new is that right. <laughs> That's correct. And we also have a Facebook page um, where we have clips from the movie, clips from the footage, um, previews, and a lot of other related clips from, uh, from other people in the field as well on that Facebook page. Excellent. And also, uh, Robert, your, your personal Facebook page is uh, one of my favorites. I, I repost a lot of your posts because you, uh, you have a constant stream of information coming from uh, a lot of different places, and uh, it's always a fascinating read. Thank you. Yeah, my, my page is, uh, uh, for those in the audience, is under uh, Robert J. Barnhart. Well, Robert J. Barnhart, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you again for, for everything you're doing uh, for, in support of such a great cause. And uh, yes. I look forward to uh, when the movie comes out, and uh, I wish you the greatest success with it. Th- th- thank you so much. It, it's been a, been a pleasure. Cheers. Thank you. Uh, a pleasure's all ours. Yeah, Cheers. this has been great. Yes.